You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hi, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. Working in healthcare can be emotionally challenging at times, and there are times when we may be involved in highly stressful situations, like your life and death situations, basically. These are like your examples of a patient having a cardiac arrest and having to spend a long time resuscitating them, or even in some situations where you're involved in the traumatic death of a patient. And often you just have to go straight back to work. So how can we make sure that we're okay and that we're safe to go back to work after such a big event? Well, today we're talking with TJ Clark. So TJ is a health psychologist within the RCH Paediatric Intensive Care Unit, or PICU as we're going to call it today. And she has seen quite a lot of emotional people over the years. Welcome, TJ. Thanks for having me, Steve. So TJ, can we just start? Can you tell me about your role within the hospital, what it involves? So I'm lucky enough to have the role of being the patient, family and staff psychologist in RCH PICU. This means that I support the psychological needs of pretty much anyone in the PICU environment, ranging from the patients that are admitted to their family members, all the way to the staff that care for them. Okay. Today, I'll be specifically focusing on my role in the staff psychology place. My work in that role ranges from providing unit-wide mental health promotion activities to providing targeted education around well-being topics and also the provision of individual psychological therapy. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about supporting the team following critical incidents. And when I say critical incident, I'm mostly referring to when an unexpected event occurs that we would expect to have an emotional impact that may overwhelm a clinician's usual coping resources. So kind of like what I mentioned before about the the cardiac arrest for a long period of time and stuff like that. Yeah, that definitely would be defined as a critical event. Yeah, yeah. And generally it's been estimated that up to half of healthcare professionals have been exposed to a critical incident at least once in their careers. And obviously this number is greater for those who work in the critical care environment. Yeah, I can imagine it's going to be far greater. So as far as the staff psychology is concerned, are you the only one that you know of or are there others? Currently, I'm the only staff psychologist assigned to a specific unit in the hospital, but RCH is in the process of establishing more roles, which is really exciting news. And I can imagine that's just on the back of the fact of how successful your position's been. Yes, I, hope. I, would, like to, <laughs> I would like to think that I could take some credit for that, but um, yep. I'm hoping that maybe by mid-2023, there will be lots more opportunities for staff to be able to access their own mental health support. Yeah. For so long, our focus has been primarily patient and family care, and rightly so, but it's great that we're now being proactive about a systemic response to addressing the mental health needs of the staff that do the hard work of caring for the most vulnerable day in and day out. Yep. So if we use a plain analogy, we're moving a little bit from the individual onus of the responsibility of putting on your own oxygen mask before the plane goes down, mm-hmm. which would be the equivalent of waiting till you get to burn out. Yep to doing pre-flight check-ins. What have you packed for this flight or the equivalent of how can we as a team contribute to your self-care? Yeah. Okay. So all about like the preparation kind of side of things more than anything else. You're right. It would be great to have this in a lot more spaces than just in the PICU. I was mentioning your job to someone the other day 
and they said that they wish that they had access to someone in a similar role within our own department, and that's in, in medical imaging. I think that we could really use it there sometimes as well. Can you just tell me, when did your position start? So in 2018, the leadership team in PICU started the process of establishing a role for a psychologist in the unit. And this was based on what they were seeing day to day as a need on the unit, but also supported by research that shows that paediatric intensive care nurses are particularly vulnerable. Mm. While most, if not all, acknowledge their job is really rewarding, this is counterbalanced with their exposure to caring for the sickest of sick children. Yeah. The reality of which means dealing with death and dying, the demands of attending to their clinical work, as well as attending to the various emotional needs of the families of their patients. They're exposed daily to ethical dilemmas such as moral distress, which relates to providing invasive treatment to children who may have very little chance of survival, as well as dealing with the day-to-day systemic issues of staff shortages and shift work. Yeah. All of this contributes to factors such as fatigue, lower job satisfaction, burnout, and also can have an impact on patient care. And some studies have shown that the prevalence of burnout is is at over 75% in PICU nurses. Wow. So I can imagine, like, if you kind of put all that, like, you you basically just summed it all up together and all of the challenges that these PICU nurses have on a daily basis in in some cases, like that's massive. And I think we take it for granted sometimes, really. Yeah, I think it is taken for granted. And just to remember that the numbers that I just quoted there were pre-COVID numbers. Mm. And I specify that because I think it really speaks volumes that the PICU team identified it a need for their staff and really went all in to make it happen. Yeah. Again, remembering this was pre-pandemic. So pre-everyone focusing so strongly on staff wellbeing as they did during the peak of COVID and now in the years following. So in 2019, there were two roles established as a pilot for 18 months. Originally, there were two separate roles, one person providing support to patients and families and the other providing staff support. Following the pilot, the roles were combined into one, and that's the role that I'm in now. How good is it then to have that forward thinking in order to establish something like that, where they're, just, they're seeing this type of need and they're just like, right, well, what are we going to do about this? And they're saying, well, let's Let's get someone that can help us with that. So once the pilot was over and the combined role was implemented, how did the staff find it? So we really try to encourage staff to access mental health support for both work-related stress as well as things that are happening in their home life or personal life. We really want to recognise that both impact each other. Yeah. Um, But irrespective of why the person is accessing support, we really saw that the staff seem to prefer it when the psychologists that they're seeing for their own issues know the type of work that they're doing, either directly in knowing what their day-to-day work looks like or indirectly, knowing how that might impact their work-life balance or their relationship with their partners, and that's why the roles were combined. And it's really the biggest piece of feedback I get about reluctance to engage with mental health services, especially with external providers. Staff will say over and over again they struggle to find mental health professionals that understand the work they do. They report spending most of their time trying to explain the particulars of their work or in the worst case scenario, end up feeling like they're comforting the clinician Mm. when they've talked about the really hard parts of their work, such as the death of a child. Yeah. It's kind of very ineffective really, isn't it? Yeah. They end up feeling like they spend most of their time that they're meant to be using for their own mental health, comforting someone else. Yeah. And I'm in no way a nursing or medical expert, but I'm on the ward every day. I work directly with the families. I have a rough sense of which patients are doing well, which are not, what families might be a bit more challenging to work with, 
And having that insight seems to provide some sense of ease for staff because they don't feel like they're having to start from scratch. Yeah. And if we move away from the individual therapy component for a minute, I would hope that the role has also had an impact on the wider culture of our unit. I think there's been a shift in psychological safety with staff feeling more comfortable to talk about the challenges associated with the work they do, not only in the confines of individual therapy, but also with each other informally and also in group forums. Obviously, this is an ongoing effort. It takes a lot of work on part of everyone to get such a highly medicalized environment to stop for a second and reflect on the emotionally challenging parts of the work. So it's a work in progress, but one I think our team is definitely dedicated to. How often do the, does the staff access your service? Like it's, is, I'm assuming it's an opt-in process for them. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely an opt-in and they have their choice to book those sessions and a large part of it has been really reinforcing the confidentiality of that. Yeah. Even though uh, staff have a mix of seeing me at home by, you know, via Teams or in person, it's been really important to really um, help people understand the confidentiality of the role that I'm in. And do you feel there's any reluctance for staff to talk about things given that they know that they're going to see you on a daily basis just around the department anyway? That's like they're real, kind of giving a, you, they're kind of giving you side eye, just going, hang on a second. I've just spoken to about such and such a thing. And now yeah. she knows about this. And yeah, that's a really good question. And some people do talk about that. The fact that they don't really like the blurring and some people really like the blurring. Some people don't like the blurring. Yeah. Um, and that's again, something that we really try and I try and set up from the start in saying, I'm going to see you in the hallways. Um, I'm going to nod and say hello to you like I would any other member of staff, but I'm never going to sidle up to you and say, how's that issue going with your partner or how's that thing going at home? Okay. So again, really setting up the expectations from the start about what that's going to look like yeah. and really um, give some relief. And that's really important, isn't it, yeah. to do that? Yeah. Oh, that's a really good way. Good, good idea. Um, so in the podcast today, we're talking about what happens immediately after significant clinical events. So for example, if we're using the ICU setting and a patient suffers a relatively unexpected cardiac arrest and dies following a lengthy resuscitation attempt by yourself or, or someone in your team, what happens currently from your perspective? Well, unfortunately, those type of events happen a lot on an ICU unit mm. and our response to providing support to each other following can really be based on many factors. Things like the mix of team members present is it mostly junior staff, senior staff, because there are potential power dynamics in relationships there. Or it might be about the acuity of the unit. Do people feel like they have to run off to the next emergency situation? Mm hmm so ideally following any kind of critical event, we'd have a space for the team that were directly involved to come together in order to mobilise their own internal resources and resume a reasonable level of functioning before moving on to the next activity. Yeah. So if we were going to talk very basically about what this would look like, the aim would be for the group to provide some basic information to each other about what happened in the event, so the facts as though as they've seen them at this time, then an informational component that would include acknowledging some of the common emotional reactions one might have following an event like this, to normalise the impact, but also to give some red flags, and then providing some psychoeducation about what might be helpful right now, and giving some people direction about where they could seek further support if they needed it. Mm. If we look at the American Heart Association or the UK Resuscitation Council, they'd be recommending debriefing following every cardiac arrest attended by a healthcare professional. Wow. However, this doesn't happen. Well, I can imagine it's 
it can't. Like it's just there's too many of them, right? Yeah, and there's a real difference of opinion. I've had lots of staff say to me, we should be doing this after every cardiac event. But then when you talk to maybe the leadership, the team, they kind of think, well, if we were doing that, we'd be attending these kind of meetings all, all day, every day. Yeah. Um, and as I said before, these events can happen pretty commonly. So that means that sometimes they can just be perceived as a normal part of the job and just to get on with it, mentality comes into play. But sometimes we can forget that this might be the first day for someone on the unit, their first experience of a resuscitation event, their first death, or maybe that one event in a long career that makes someone question whether they want to keep coming back. Mm. We can unfortunately perpetuate that get on with it mentality by not acknowledging that the work is hard, really hard, and then people can feel isolated if they don't get that reassurance from their peers. They start thinking, am I the only one that's struggling with this? Maybe I'm not cut out for this work. Mm. Right now it feels a bit ad hoc about how and when and where this support is provided. So one thing I'm trying to work on this year is to try and formalise the process a little better. Try to take the individual perception out of the event and make it a routine part of our work, part of our everyday practice. Yeah, and these events still resonate with people. Like They're going to remember them for a long period of time. I still remember the first time I saw the death of a patient when I was a student, and I'm talking now 22 years ago that that happened, and I still remember it to this day quite vividly as well, and it was actually in this hospital too. So did I feel that I got the support that I needed at the time? Perhaps not because maybe the support networks weren't there, but I don't feel like I was particularly affected by it, but that could be my, my own resilience compared to someone else's, so I don't know. TJ, can you just discuss the term debrief? Because that is a term that gets used a fair bit. Um, it can be used as an official term, but also interchangeably, right? Yeah, there are heaps of words in this space. Demobilization, hot debriefing, diffusing, pre-briefing, restorative review, reflective practice. Some of these words are the same, slightly different, used sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. Mm -hmm. But I think from an ICH perspective, people well-meaningly use the term debrief to cover a lot of different types of gatherings. From my perspective, I think the term debrief usually means I can identify my team needs something to address the challenging set of circumstances we faced. But eliciting what that looks like in practicality can be really tricky. So really... The words that I would feel comfortable using in our environment would divide into two terms. So diffusing, which happens following an event, which yep. we spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. and debriefing, which can occur a couple of days, maybe even a week later. I think what's really challenging is that a lot of the early work in this space was with the military or frontline emergency workers, such as police, firefighters. While there are similarities in our roles, healthcare is really different, mostly because for a lot of the events we face, we may have had really long-standing relationships with the patient and their families, which adds a different layer to the impact. And unlike first responders, there's a complexity to the relationships we have and that we may feel somewhat responsible for the outcome in relation to that moral distress I noted earlier. Yeah. There's also been a lot of controversy in this space with early research showing that debriefing practices may have increased psychological symptoms However, more recent literature shows that there are positive psychological effects for healthcare practitioners who participate in planned debriefing sessions. When these sessions address emotional distress, it can result in enhanced coping and connection with colleagues. Okay, so what does a debrief look like in the PICU? 
The aim would be to focus a little more on the emotional impact of the event. Healthcare professionals are high achieving, mostly driven by facts. Mm -hmm. So it's important to highlight that there will be plenty of opportunities to discuss the technical aspects, such as at a mortality and morbidity meeting, but that this space does not serve that purpose. Usually we'll start by a few staff members providing a summary of the event and then we'll open it up for initial comments or questions and then move towards a discussion related to the thoughts or feelings people had or continue to have. And is it, it's everyone in the team that was involved, do they all get together at the same time during that particular session? So in a debriefing, we would definitely invite the unit uh, as a whole to come. And then it would be an opt-in situation with people who felt like they needed to be there. We often try and encourage people to think about the reason of why they're coming and make sure that their motivation for coming is to find out information, to express something they need to, rather than being there purely out of interest. Okay. A lot of the time for staff, it seems to be about asking that question that's been keeping them up at night. Should I have done X? What if we had done Y? And even if there might not be a clear answer at this early stage following the event, uh, sharing that vulnerability with your team and often having a colleague share that they thought the same thing, the connection that creates is the intervention in itself. I was going to ask about that actually, because I was going to say, is it worth someone coming purely for the fact that they might start talking about someone else might bring something up that they hadn't actually thought of and they might just go, oh, I probably would have thought of that later down the track. So maybe it is worth turning up to these things anyway. Yeah. And uh, as you can think of with a long admission for a patient, there might be a lot of staff members that are involved. So if we just included the people that were involved in that immediate incident, Mm. we'd be losing the opportunity for a large number of staff members to be able to talk about what might have happened early on in the admission and their feelings around that. So we do want to be as inclusive as possible. Yeah. While most of the time we're actually gathering together to discuss some really tricky incidents, they can actually be meetings that have pockets filled with immense joy and connection. When that one staff member expresses relief that they weren't alone in thinking the way that they were thinking, or when staff come together to reflect on special memories of their time caring for a patient that has died. It really brings people back to the core values of why they keep turning up to do a really hard job. So out of all of those things that, that you do talk about you can, and you can bring up, there's a lot that's kind of involved with that. Is there any part of that process that you think is the most important? If I was to say which part of this process that I think is the most important but actually gets overlooked, it's the introduction or setting up the scene. There's a huge amount of trust a team need to put in each other to participate in something like this. So a good chunk of the time needs to be used for setting up expectations of what this meeting is about. What's the aim? What do we expect of each other in regards to, of respectful communication? What does confidentiality look like? Mm. It's a hard place to launch from if that solid foundation isn't in place. And so what for other departments then? Like if you, you know, you've got this set up for PICU, but what about other departments in the hospitals that probably need this but don't have access to someone like you? Who can run these types of sessions? Well, firstly, what I'd like to reinforce is that while I'm speaking today in my role as a psychologist, these practices aren't therapy. They are an opportunity to be able to identify staff that might need further support beyond what a debrief can offer. Okay. So I can't really speak about who does them outside of my department, but what I can say is that I think everyone can have a role in doing so. I think particularly in the immediate after phase, the diffusing space, 
When diffusing is done, it sometimes mitigates the need for further debriefing. The bravest role is being the person that puts up their hand to say, I think we as a team need to stop before moving on to the next task. And that's something anyone can do. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably a really important thing given the number of teams that are involved in a number of these critical incidences on a day-to-day basis, who is the one that's actually going to stand up and, and say, let's all just stop for a minute and just reflect on what just happened and then keep moving? Yeah. And I can say that that is, uh, anyone can do that role, but it can be really hard as we talked about with power dynamics in different teams. And that's why, as I said before, that I'm trying to make a little bit more of a criteria so it doesn't really fit, that there's a non-negotiable times that we do do it. Mm, yeah, yeah. But ultimately at the core of all of this, it's centered around peer connection. I see my role as helping to facilitate that connection, but it's not really about my professional role as a psychologist. It's more about helping the group tap into their collective wisdom. Often the team well-meaningly send colleagues who have had their first critical event happen to me to check in following a resuscitation event or a patient death. And that's great. But at the end of the day, they're able to reflect that they get most benefit from hearing from other nurses they admire talk about their own experiences. And that connection happens in the tea room, not in the psychologist's office. Okay. So if we don't have an official debrief, what are some other methods that might be useful for staff immediately following such events? And we we talked a little bit about just the team kind of just gathering and just saying, you know, let's just talk about what happened there. What else could they do? Well, I think the hardest but most important task for busy healthcare professionals is just taking a second to stop. We're all busy with full workloads. It can be so natural to just move on to the next task. But what I'd like to see staff doing is just taking a moment to acknowledge the enormity and the impact of what's happened. Mm. Something as simple as checking in with themselves and saying, geez, that was really hard. And then attending to really basic needs that really bring us back to that functioning level. So what does my body need right now? Which may be about drinking some water, having a snack, or even using the bathroom. Okay. So let me give you a hypothetical situation here, because this does happen sometimes with us. And I'm going to put my radiographer hat on here. Let's say I'm working a night shift and I have to go to resus in the emergency department to assist with the trauma. And in that time that the patient dies, now night shift for us means that uh, we only have one of the radiographers in the hospital at, at the time. So now that the patient's died, I'm no longer required in the emergency department and I have to go back to my Category 4, Category 5 patients that have been waiting for hours or whatever, and I've got no other staff members about. How can I ensure that I'm okay? Yeah, that situation sounds really tricky, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Um, and part of that, I think, speaks to the need for a cultural change. I'd be hoping that when it comes to checking in with each other, we can see each other outside of departmental silos. Most debriefing literature will talk about the importance of debriefing happening with homogenous groups. Mm-hmm. So that means groups that have a shared identity or have an existing relationship with each other. So rather than thinking of ourselves as a medical ward or team, How can we think of each other as part of the wider RCH collective identity? That means being mindful of the impact on the radiographer, the PSA, or the student physio that was in the vicinity. Okay. But in your specific example, I'd be encouraging that staff member to think about using support such as the employee assistance program, consider contacting a peer supporter, or look on the RCH intranet, which has a wealth of resources under the staff wellbeing page. 
and so you could also like kind of on along the lines of what you're saying, you could also just pick someone out else out that was part of that process, that resus process, and just go, hey, can I just talk to you just for a minute because I just want to just have some time to debrief because I got no one else in the department. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that we need to be mindful sometimes of when we're doing that, that we're not necessarily sliming each other when we're mm. just picking a person because there might be certain people that are always picked because they're the people that we know are really good supports. Mm. So we need to really be able to check in with that person before we launch into that to say, hey, is this okay? Do you feel like you're comfortable and safe to do this? Would you find that this would be beneficial for you right now? Too? Yeah, really, really good point. TJ, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about this. It's such an important aspect of the work that people don't often talk about, so it's really good to see that there are options. And as TJ has mentioned, remember to check in on each other following these kinds of events. Use the available support networks that your organisation has, whether it's an employee assistant program or otherwise. Thanks again, TJ, for chatting. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts, where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.